sincerity. Poor Linus later when the great pumpkin is not showing up as the night gets longer and longer, he will begin to doubt his confidence in the sincerity of his pumpkin patch. He will wonder if it's sincere enough. Um, This is the plot of all kinds of rom-coms or a sitcom episode. Usually a guy or a girl is dating someone or maybe they're applying for a job or they're trying to get in good with somebody and they really pretend that they're really into something. They're they're trying, they're faking sincerity about something. Um, And... Unfortunately, they can't keep proving their sincerity, and it all comes crumbling down around them. When I was a kid, a teenager, even really a young adult, um, I worried about not being sincere enough for God or good enough for God. I wanted to be saved. I wanted to be loved by God, and I wasn't sure I was good enough for that. Somewhere, I got mixed messaging of all that behavior talk in church. And it landed about worrying about not being good enough. Um, And all I felt like I heard was about a judgmental God. My first callings to ministry, the first stirrings, came as a really young kid. I can distinctly remember hearing a missionary tell their story. And I remember thinking, if I did that, like, I would know for sure that I was in good with God. Like, if I went to the jungles of Africa or somewhere to another part of the world, I would know that God loved me if I did something like that. I was a direct product, uh, an annoying product (laughs) of conservative 90s youth group culture, uh, I had the t-shirts, you know the ones, that tried to take popular slogans and popular ad campaigns and turn them into something Jesus-y, because that was going to save everybody. Um, The one I remember the most distinctly, I had a a red t-shirt that was a spoof on the Coca-Cola logo, and it said, Jesus, the real king. I thought I was something else. You know, this became my whole personality. I took that seriously, that challenge of being sold out for Jesus. Um, And it became my identity. I was obnoxious in proving my sincerity to God. I don't know how people, I don't know how I had friends. I don't know how people stood me at that time. I was judgy trying to prove my sincerity. Because more than anything, I wanted to know that I was okay. I wanted to know that God loved me. I wanted to know that I was enough. I would bet that I'm not the only one here who's struggled with enoughness. And maybe even some of us are bringing that in today, struggling with that. Two weeks ago, we talked about Saul and Samuel. Samuel had installed Saul as king, but Saul made one bad choice after another, and he didn't repent for any of it. You may remember from the video that in 1 Samuel, while Saul's narrative is one bad thing after another, one defeat, David's story is rising. Their their stories start in parallel to one another. After Saul got impatient for Samuel and decided to make a sacrifice in the temple on his own, Samuel is like, God is done with you, Saul. This is over at this point. And then we fast forward to where we are today. Um, Samuel tells uh, Saul in uh, in chapter 13, 13 in 1 Samuel, you have done foolishly. 
You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. The Lord would have established your king over kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him to be ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. I mentioned in that sermon that Samuel, throughout his whole life, just he has to keep speaking truth to power in really often uncomfortable ways at times. And this is one of those ways. I love where he's like, uh, God's like, okay, go anoint a new king. Yeah, I know Saul is kind of crazy and a little ragey, but but go and do this anyway. And Samuel's like, how can I do this? If Saul finds out, I will be dead. And, And God's just like, all right, go take a go take a sacrifice, and um, like God doesn't tell him it's going to be okay. God just tells him to go and how to do it. So Samuel uh, takes off, um, and um, it's important I think to note that David's father Jesse is called to gather his sons for Samuel. That when he's called to do that, he doesn't even think about David. David is an afterthought. He's a little guy out in the pastures. He wouldn't have had that CEO face that we talked about for Saul. Saul looked like a leader. He was head and shoulders above everybody else. David was good looking. We're we're told that. He's full of energy. But he's a small guy fresh out of the shepherd's field. And then David and Saul's lives weirdly begin to weave together. David was a musician. He played the lyre, which was like a a small harp. And we know that he wrote songs and poetry as we have them in our book of Psalms. He even played for Saul at one point to calm Saul's spirit, this ragey, angry spirit he had. David defeats Goliath as their lives keep getting closer and closer together. And Saul gets angrier and more murderous. Murderous. That's a fun word. You don't get to use that very often. Murderous. But through all of this time, we see David's faith in God. Others try to put him into power before God says it's time to take that role. But David is waiting for God's timing. In the last chapters of 1 Samuel, we're told that Saul and his sons are killed in battle. And as the video showed, David is begins 2 Samuel mourning their loss. Uh, these are uh, Saul is one who was trying to kill him, but he still uh, is mourning the loss, uh, mourning their loss. David begins uh, as he's officially anointed as the king of Judah. Over the years, what was the Israelite nation, the 12 tribes of Judah that we've been talking about, they had been scattered. And David's first acts are to bring them all together again. He brings the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, which means, like the video said, now it's not just a political unification, it's also a religious and spiritual unification. What the video doesn't say is that David won't build the temple um, because God says you have too much blood on your hands. You're going to be in too many battles. You will be killing too many people. That's going to happen in the future. David makes mistakes throughout his life. He begins to be prideful in his position, and he feels entitled to places, to things, to people. In the beginning of Second Samuel 6, he decides that he's going to bring the ark back. One translation basically reads, David had this idea, and it seemed good to all the people, and so they did it. 
He doesn't check with God first. And so then they begin parading it in and it starts to slip. Even their best planned efforts were enough because God was not a part of the plan. And some poor guy named Uzzah reaches out to keep it from falling and touches it. He's dead on the spot in the moment. David becomes angry with God in the middle of this procession celebrating God and says, we're not moving it anymore. I don't want to be responsible for this. And he stashes it in a nearby house. I've shared this story because it is not one we grew up hearing in VBS. I think it's crazy. These were not big homes. And now the Ark of the Covenant is sitting in somebody's living room. Um, And so uh, it's the home of Obed-Edom. Can you imagine how creepy that is? Not only is it inconvenient, but it's creepy because you know that the last person who touched this died instantly. And now it's occupying space in your home. But you can't say no to the king. Um, And so uh, the ark stayed with them for three months until petty David hears that they're being blessed because of the ark. And so now he decides it's okay to try moving it again. Uh, and, and he just goes to get it. He's like, all right, thanks for housing it for this long. We're going to take it from here. While David did use his art for praying and showing his devotion to God, there is a lot of hatefulness in the Psalms. You may remember a story I shared years ago here. Uh, in my first month, actually, of being your pastor, I spent a, a few days at a monastery um, in Alabama for a Baptist Women in Ministry event and. It was occupied by nuns. They were the ones who ran it. And each day, they would gather multiple times a day to read through the scriptures to really sing the psalms. They would have kind of a a way that they would chant them together. And these were a lot of, like, little old ladies um, that were nuns. I mean, you know, there's a couple younger ones mixed in, but most of them are in their twilight years. Um, And... As they would gather, we we join them for worship. Um, They have these notes that that match up with the words of psalms, simple lines of music, and and they fit the words to them. So they're singing the same thing over and over again. And it can be beautiful and wonderful to sing scripture this way if you've never done that, as you're all kind of joining in together, reading scripture, singing scripture together. However, they do this with all of the songs, even the ones where David gets a little ragey and a little envious. Imagine, if you will, a group of senior adult nuns singing chants together uh, as such phrases as their throats are open graves. You destroy those who speak lies. All my enemies shall be ashamed and struck with terror. They shall turn back and in a moment be put to shame. There's a, this is a specific kind of psalm. Uh, it's a psalm that invokes judgment, calamity, and curses. And not all the ones that we find in our book of psalms are written by David, but a lot of them are. Alongside of his devotion God for God was also a, des, a deep desire for God to hurt his enemies. I mean, who of us doesn't really want that, if we're really, really honest? Maybe not a deep hurt. Maybe we don't want their throats to be open graves. But maybe we just want a a bad hair day or them to get stuck in traffic or hot coffee spilled on them. He lived, though, in a world of do or die, where your enemies were really out for your life. And he wanted them gotten before they got him. 
The biggest mistake, though, we know of all was his affair with Bathsheba. 2 Samuel 11.1 starts with, In the spring of the year, the time when kings went out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him. David is supposed to be on the battlefield. He's just taken a pass this time around. He sends the rest of his leaders out into battle. And while he has this extra time on his hands, he begins looking out over his out of his rooftop. And David would have had multiple wives at this point. That would have been the culture. But he sees a woman bathing, as she would have had to do. I have heard I want to go a little deeper in this because I've heard some sermons that put blame on Bathsheba for uh, her part in this. She was just doing what she did. She was bathing. She was taking care of herself. David is the one who sees her and looks, sees what he wants, and brings her to him. He was the king. She would have had no opportunity to be able to say no. She has no choice in this matter of what's happening. David assaults her, and then he sends her home. As you saw in the video, once she's pregnant, he plots to take the blame off of himself, and that ultimately ends with him having her husband deliberately be put on the front lines in a way that would have him killed. So he implicates a lot of others in this act as well. And he obviously is feeling no shame in his plan until Nathan comes to him the next priest, after Samuel. And he uses a parable that points out what David has done. David did some pretty awful things. But still, this is a man who was called a man after God's own heart. Clearly, he didn't follow what God wanted him to do all of the time. So why use those words to describe him? I think the truth is found in David's anointing in 1 Samuel 16. Samuel's looking at these big muscular brothers thinking they would have to be the ones that God is anointing as the next king. But God says to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God could see his heart. David made mistakes, huge mistakes in his life. We see his feelings and what he's thinking when we look to the Psalms, and it is not all good. But in the end, he wasn't defined by his biggest triumphs, and he wasn't defined by his biggest mistakes. It was his open love for God and honesty before God that made him a man after God's own heart. He was sincere. It was a matter of heart. Sincerity always is. It spills out into our actions, but it doesn't mean that we don't ever make mistakes. It doesn't mean that we don't wish the worst on our enemies sometimes. It doesn't mean that we don't lose our temper, that we don't uh, take things and, and people that are not ours. We will make mistakes, but God continues to say, don't look at the outward appearance, look at the heart. There were also plenty of moments in David's life where he could have questioned what God was doing. Did God even care? We see that honesty in the Psalms. Had God forgotten him? Even in those words, his sincere heart was all that God saw. 
there are days where we feel like we're killing it. We're doing amazing. We are loving our neighbors, caring for our world, loving those closest to us well, and we feel the presence of God in our lives. In these days, it's easy to lose sight of God's presence with us because we easily can think we're doing it all on our own. We deserve the things we have. We may just write off our mistakes because everybody makes them. This is not a love we have to earn, the love of God. It exists always. It is a love that can see sincerity. It's not a sincerity we have to prove. We just embody it. Whatever we're feeling, wherever we are, the key difference between Saul and David was humility. David was sincere in his love for God and his desire to learn. He made mistakes. He faced the consequences of those mistakes. But ultimately, he was willing to learn and be humble. How's your humility this morning? Are you willing to admit you don't know it all? Don't deserve certain things in this life to the point that you just take them. Are you willing to be humble in a culture that says never show weakness? Just show that you're perfect. Show that you know all the things that there are to know. We spend so much energy trying to prove that we deserve or have earned through our knowledge, through our actions, through our control, a love that always was ours to begin with. In a world that tells us we do not measure up, we're too much, we're too little, where industries are built on our self-improvement, where we try to work out our issues around wanting control, perfection, peace, and happiness on other people. It is a good word that we serve a good God that sees us, that sees you, sees your heart, and knows it. We serve a kind of intimate God that loves us better than we can even imagine. We serve a God that sees past the things that the world sees, maybe even what those closest to us see, and can just see a heart of sincerity. God is a loving, God is loving enough to call us out when we need it, but just as with David, God never leaves us. Deuteronomy 31.6 in the message says, Be strong. Take courage. Do not be intimidated. Do not give them a second thought because God, your God, is striding ahead of you. He's right there with you. He won't let you down. He won't leave you. Will you pray with me?